This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people, and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's Word. Praise the Lord. I'm going to please indulge me this morning as I'm going to be drinking some liquid as we go through. I have been battling uh, sickness this week, but I am victorious. God is a healer, amen, and I'm thankful for that. I'm, I uh, have a staff that was willing to step in and preach, and uh, I wanted to preach this message and didn't want to put undue uh, expectation on them as well, so <coughs> excuse me, we're going <coughs> to get, they're going to get me monitored back there, but <coughs> I have... Glad I wore pockets because I got all these things that I'm going to be pulling out today. <laughs> it's me and my Barney bag or something like that. Uh, love where you live. Do you love where you live? Awesome, awesome. I just want to bring a real quick announcement about outflows right around the corner. Two weeks left, and we desperately need your participation. Turn to your neighbor and say, we need you. Uh, the reason I say that is because we're about half of what we normally are, and we desperately need you. We've got 13 amazing projects that we want to go and love our city, and uh, we want to be able to complete those projects to the best of our abilities. And so, therefore, we need you to help us do those things. Yeah. And uh, so, so, please sign up. Get on there this week and sign up for one of the teams. Uh, we're, we're coming to a wind down of Love Where You Live. I preached today, and then next Next Sunday is a TED Talk where we all are going to come as, as staff. We're going to come and share different things about this, this series. And then we're, we're, we're done with the series. But how many know that even though the series might end, it doesn't end our call? It doesn't end the direction of where God's taking us. And we've been asking this question in Love Where You Live. What would happen if each of you really began to love where we live? What would happen if each of you began to love where we live? I'm holding my Bible here because before I do this, I, how, many, how many got your Bibles this morning? We're going to lift them up high. I love this. I love this. We're going to be going to the book of Jeremiah. Everyone say Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It's one of the major prophets. Uh, if you've turned and find Psalms in the middle of your Bible, you're going to go five books, five books closer to the New Testament, and that's Jeremiah. And uh, so if you want to get there and put your finger in there while I'm doing some review this morning, we will get to the book of Jeremiah in just a few moments. But love where you live. What would happen if each of us really loved where we lived? And, and uh, that, that's been this pressing question that, that we've hopefully is haunting you. Hopefully we've haunted you. Hopefully it's in your dreams. Hopefully uh, that when you think about the city of Salem going, do I love where I live? And um, it's really, really important. You're going to notice that I'm not going to be able to get really excited here. Otherwise, I'm going to start coughing. So if I'm monotone, give me a, give me a good grade this morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, but you, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and he's going to give you boldness and he's going to transform your life and you're going to be witnesses. And that really is what it's all about is that God's called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit that therefore we would witness him, that we would tell about him. We've been through, going through four phases of the phase number one, personal transformation, phase number two, home transformation, phase number three, circle transformation. And phase number four, the city transformation. And that's where, we're, that's where we're settled today. And the question that I would ask you today is this, in conjunction with our first question, is this very fact. Do you love your city for what it provides for you? <coughs> Please. <coughs> Do you love your city for what it provides for you? Do you love your city because of how you benefit it? Do you love your city because... Uh, you like the mayor? Do you love your city because of the city council? Do you love the city because of the climate? Why do you love the city of Salem? Or is it do you love your city because God loves the people of your city? And that really is what it comes down to this morning is do you love the people of this city? Today I've entitled this message, Do Something. Turn to your neighbor and say, would you just do something? Come on, would you just do something? Get some attitude in it. Would you just do something? Do you ever feel like that with somebody? Would you, as you're looking at their life and they're just like a couch potato and you're going, no, don't look at your spouse right now. <laughs> but would you just do something? Would you just do something with your life? You know, when I think about that statement, I think about, would you just do anything? Would you get up off your rear and do something? 
Uh, would you, would you, don't just sit there. Don't just be a bump on a log. Do something. Do you ever feel that frustration sometimes in life? Just do something. And sometimes that frustration can be directed at yourself. <clears throat> Today I'm going to date myself. I'm going to give you a song from 2012. Probably one of my favorite contemporary Christian singers was Matthew West, uh, still sings today. I mean, if you know Gobble Gobble 1, Gobble Gobble 2, he's still famous in our world today. Uh, really deeply spiritual, you know, if you want to think about Thanksgiving. But a song that he uh, wrote and sang was, he titled it, Do Something. Do Something. It says, I woke up this morning, I saw a world full of trouble, and I thought, how did we ever get so far down? How is it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven and I thought, God, why don't you just do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty and children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist to heaven and said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. Yeah, I created you. The song goes on to say, if not for us, then who? If not for me and you right now, it's time for us to do something. I don't know if you've sensed that throughout this series or not, but the series is not about God doing something supernatural, even though it is. He's actually doing something in us to do something supernatural. The whole process is that this personal life change, personal transformation begins with you. This loving where you live begins with you and morphs into something great that God's power is in us and changes us to do something. Pastor Jesse last week, as he stepped into this transformation, this level four, he talked about, uh, he made this statement, in order to transform the city, you must live beyond yourself. You must live beyond yourself. You must get uncomfortable and enter into the messiness of broken humanity. When I think about this concept, what, what a way to over, overarch this entire series, but what a way to overarch this segment, this circle, this phase. Enter into the brokenness of humanity. To enter into the brokenness of humanity, uh, the definition as you begin to look at this, it means that you have to be present. You have, to, you have to enter into something. You have to take up a place of residence. You have to reside in. You have to inhabit. You have to engage. And what I love about this is that we have someone that came before us in the New Testament who actually did this. Jesus came and he did something. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and what? Dwelt. Everyone say dwelt. Dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. <coughs> The message translation says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He entered in to the neighborhood. He entered into the city. He became part of it. He broke it. He went into the, the messiness of humanity. When I talk about doing something, I'm talking about you first being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being present in your life and flowing out of your life into the messiness of others. Because isn't it, what, isn't it God's presence that came into your messiness and fixed your messiness? Do you realize today that you and I have no power to fix someone else's messiness? You and I have no power to change a person's life. We don't even have the power to change our own life. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives and changes us and helps us to be a change agent to others. Jesus moved in to the neighborhood Jesus knew about the neighborhood. Jesus knew about the messiness. Jesus knew about the people. Jesus knew about the humanity that he created. And he says, I'm going to move in. I'm going to encounter. I'm going to experience. I'm going to set up my tent. I'm going to walk with them. I'm going to talk with them. I'm going to live with them. And the question I ask you today is this. Do you know about your neighborhood? Do you know about your city? Are you aware of the messiness that's out there because you've encountered the messiness? Or do you just know about the messiness because you've read about the messiness? Do you know about the brokenness of people because you've walked with broken people? Or do you just observe it from a distance as you're driving down the road? I want you to know today that Jesus did not just drive down the road. Jesus got into the messiness. And for us to love where we live, we have to do something. Everyone say, do something. Do something. So Salem is located in the heart of the Willamette Valley. 
Prior to it being named Salem, the area was called Chimicate by the Native American tribe Kalapuya. Chimicate means this meeting or resting place. Salem was founded in 1842 by Jason Lee, a Methodist missionary, and soon became the capital of the Oregon Territory in 1851. Salem is a form of shalom, that Hebrew, that we, Hebrew word that we know as peace. The city was incorporated in 1857. Jason Lee is considered the father of Salem, having established in a Methodist mission in Willamette University, the circuit rider symbolizes the frontier minister who rode horseback between the dist- uh, because of the distance between churches. What I want you to realize this morning is that Salem, Oregon, was founded on faith in Jesus Christ. Salem, Oregon has a powerful heritage and a powerful legacy, not just of what it was and what it could be, but based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ that God does save. Facts about Salem that you might not be aware of, Salem proper had a population of 180,685 in the 2022 census. The metropolitan, metropolitan, metropolitan Salem area, area is the second largest in the state, combining Marion and Polk County with a population close to 500,000. The two leading candidates for the tallest building in Salem are the Salem First United Methodist, which is connected to Jason Lee, and our Capitol Center. And I, this, is, this is a cool fact to me. This is what I think is so cool. As a survey was commissioned to figure out who was the tallest, the church's steeple is taller than the state capitol. Can I tell you what that says to me? Is that the name of Jesus is still higher than government. That in our state, it's the, it's the highest, in our city, it's the highest point, and we need to celebrate the highest point being Jesus. Salem is basically the center of the universe. It sits on the 45th parallel, which means it's, between, it's the center between the North Pole and the equator. Willamette University is the oldest college in the American West. It had been established in 1842. Salem Trees have won awards. The National Arbor Day Foundation has named Salem the tree city of the USA, running the last 30 years. I could go on and on with facts. I could go on and on about uh, all these different things. But what I want to ask you this morning is, do you know where you live? Do you know where you live? Do you know the people that you live around? Do you understand the culture and the context? Every city is unique, but one thing I do know for sure, because God's Word tells us this, is that in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11, through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouths of the wicked, it is destroyed." Through the blessing of the upright, a city is lifted, a city is exalted, a city becomes this victorious thing, but the mouths of the wicked, but by the mouths of the wicked, it is destroyed. And what we have to realize is that in every society, in every community, community, there is those that bless and there are the wicked. There are the upright and there are the wicked. We see it from the beginning of time, this tension, this battle that is there. The upright is said to exalt a city by the way that they live, and by the way that they speak. And what we have to understand here is the Hebrew word here for bless is baraka, which means to bestow favor upon something by speaking well of it. Oftentimes, we come back to the upright going that it's just by our lifestyle that we are changing, which is important. We're going to see, we see that in Scripture as well. But the blessing, the baraka, the, the words that we speak over our city either exalt the city or tear down the city. What I like about this is the very root form of this idea of baraka actually means to kneel and to bless. When you think about that term of speaking out and to blessing, it was not just going, well, I bless the city. No, it was kneeling before God and saying, I'm going to cast a blessing over this. I'm going to declare a blessing over the city. The wicked, as we go on to the second passage of Scripture, uh, uh, don't have this blessing. They only tear a city down with their actions and their words. They're called the wicked. The actual Hebrew word here is rasha, which means the criminally wicked. When we think back to this concept of the upright and the, the wicked, 
When it talks about the criminally wicked, these people not only, not only, uh, do not only bless the city, uh, do not bless the city, excuse me, but they take from it. They promote criminal, criminal and life, lawless lifestyles, promoting disobedience and selfishness and self-centered lifestyles. And when we step back and we look at, our, look at the field out there and we see the people that are around us going, and I want to ask you today, which one are you? Are you an upright person who pronounces blessing on Salem? Are you a wicked that pulls from? I think all of us in our lives can step back and imagine our, our situations in our lives and sometimes where we've resented our city and sometimes where we've been thankful for our city. <coughs> when we think of this idea of city in Scripture, it refers to the human settlement that was surrounded by a fortification or by a wall. Most ancient cities numbered only about 1,000 to 3,000 people, and it was a city because of the closeness, the proximity of people. The city brought people together. When we think about the city of Salem, it brings people together. We have, uh, we ha- we have malls and grocery stores and markets and neighborhoods. It's a gathering of people. Rick Warren said this, God has a vision for the city. His plan began in the Garden of Eden and it ends in the city, the New Jerusalem. God has a relationship in every city with compassion. He dispatches ministers, not just ministers on the platform, but ministers who will understand it's his heart toward the city and develop a vision for that city. Every city seems to have a personality or a soul with a mind and a will and emotions. Can I tell you, as I moved to Salem, Salem has its own mind, will, and emotions. God's created every city in a uniqueness that is there, but God understands our city. A minister who ventures into the city will touch its emotions and its mindset. To touch the city, you must understand God's view of the city. And many times, you know, I may understand, we may come back and go, well, no, God, I I get it. You put Salem here. I know you love Salem. But can I tell you that God thinks about Salem more than you're thinking about Salem? God's thinking about the people of the city. God understands the emotions of the city. God understands the brokenness of the city. God cares about the city. God has a passion for cities. He had a passion for Nineveh, so he sent Jonah. He had a passion for Ephesus, so he sent Paul. He had a passion for Thessalonica, so he sent Paul. He was about the city. He sent people to cities. Jesus had a passion for the city. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, what did he do? He wept over the city. And he said, if you, even, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. It wasn't just this concept that Jesus was going to his crucifixion. Jesus was going, I love the city. Jerusalem, I love you. I'm weeping over you. I'm weeping over your purpose, and you're missing the purpose. Can I tell you today that I think that Jesus, God, weeps over Salem because Salem is missing its purpose? Do you feel that passion in your own heart? Do you weep over our city? Do you drive the streets and go, no, we're missing the purpose? Jerusalem had missed its destiny of peace. It had missed him in the middle of everything. It had missed him in the middle of religion. It had missed him in the middle of politics. It had lost this idea of Jesus being peace. Acts chapter 17, Luke writes, the God who made the world and everything in it. How many believe that? The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, everybody say one man, one man every nation. He's talking about Adam here, that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of this earth. All the way from the beginning of over 6,000 years ago till now, God designed it that man would dominate, man would rule and reign on this planet. But what we miss oftentimes is this. It goes on that the writer Luke says, he goes, having determined and allotted periods and... uh, Having to, 
on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's talking about cities. He's talking about generations. He's talking about peoples right here. That God, at the beginning of time, at the beginning of creation, said, I'm going to determine the allotted periods that people are going to be alive on this planet. Can I tell you today that God created you, your generation, to be here presently at this moment in time? He appointed you a lot of time. He's given a boundary line for the city of Salem, and he said, this is a dwelling place. And he says, I am putting you where you are on purpose. It wasn't just because you were born in the Willamette Valley. It wasn't just because you inherited something here or your family moved here or whatever it might be. Can I tell you that there's a God that, who created everything who is over all of those things. And he's the one that is allotting and allowing. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, are you being a blessing to the city that you're part of or are you being a cursing to the city that you're part of? Are you part of the answer are you doing something? Recent studies reveal that the vast majority of believers in churches uh, that they go to, whether they realize it or not, adopt one of three attitudes, one of three attitudes towards their city. Number one, and we'll, I'm going to break them down here in just a second, but those attitudes are apathy, animosity, and imitation. Apathy, everyone say apathy. Apathy, animosity, everyone say animosity. Imitation. Everyone say imitation. Today I want to look at these four attitudes, or three attitudes, and I'm going to add a fourth one to it in just a second. First of all, this attitude of apathy, I would state as a church that is in the city. A church that's in the city, a church that dwells within the city. This idea of apathetic is a having a lack of interest, feeling, or concern. Someone that lives here, a church that's present here, that they're, but they're apathetic to everything that's around it. They recognize that they're here. They, they may have been here for generations. They have a great building. They've got a great location. They have an imprint, but they really are apathetic about the city. When a church is apathetic towards a city, they're simply in the city. They make no impact on the city. It's not about lending to the city, but it's about existing. It's about hiding within the four walls of a building. The second attitude is animosity, a strong feeling of dislike or hatred, even hostility towards. And I've labeled this a church that is against the city. Think about it. You know, I can tell you times in my life, at times in pastoring, times in even being part of Calvary Temple and to Relevant Life Church, times that we have been in the city, times that there's been animosity in our hearts towards the city, where there's been disgust towards the city, a strong feeling of dislike. And today I wanted to ask you today, where are you at on the scale? There's moments that we might, might not like what's going on. When a church has animosity towards a city, they're against the city. They maintain an escapist mentality. It's the mindset that the city is evil and the church is good. It's an us versus them idea. The third attitude is an attitude of imitation. This definition is to copy, to be the same as, to adopt the mindset of. And I've labeled this a church of the city. A church of the city, a church that says, I'm going to be like the city. I want the, church to, I want the city to like me, so I'm going to be like the city, and I, I'm going to adopt their identity, and I'm going to look like them, and they're going to look like me, and there's going to be this idea that, of sameness. This imitation is a process of adapting or adjusting to a culture. And as we step back and we look at these three attitudes of apathy and animosity and imitation, we can immediately come to a quick synopsis to go, those are not what we want. How many recognize that today? Those, we, we don't want to be apathetic. We don't want to have animosity towards Salem. We don't want to imitate Salem. God's Word is very clear about all those things. But today I want to bring and spend the remainder of my message on this last point that God's actually called us to be a church for the city. Not a church in the city, not a church of the city, not a church against the city, but a church for the city. Everyone say for. for. Say, I want to live for Salem. Come on, I want to live for Salem. 
We're going to look to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're there, if you want to put your finger in, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Jeremiah was a son of the priest. He was a prophet. He wrote and he dictated this book of Jeremiah. Because of Jeremiah's lineage, he would have been raised a priest, though no record of his priestly service exists. Instead, God chose him to be a prophet to speak to the people of Judah on God's behalf. Jeremiah is actually one of the longest reigning prophets, longest living prophets, longest ministry of prophets that we see recorded in the Old Testament spanning to 40 years. He saw the crisis of, of the city and downfall of Jerusalem coming, and he war- warned the people. The leaders refused to listen, however, telling Jeremiah to be quiet. But Jeremiah's worst fears materialized in 597 B.C. when the invasion finally took place, and Jeremiah's, uh, Jerusalem's most skilled artisans and craftsmen were deported from Babylon. Let's turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 29. I just want to read some verses here. You'll follow along on the screen, but I don't have all them all up there. But I'm going to start with verse, chapter, verse number 1 of chapter 29. It says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skipping down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I've carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give, do- uh, and give your daughters in marriage so they too can have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Going on to verse 8, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to, sit, to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will then come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Heavenly Father, today I pray that you would give me words and give me the ability, God, to communicate clearly this morning. God, these just next few moments... The setting, the Babylonians have seized Jerusalem. He's cap- they've taken captive every person that was of value, that was of influence, and they carried him back to Babylonia, which was 500 mi- plus miles across deserts. The Israelites were separated from their land. They were separated from their people. They were, there was nobody that spoke their language. They didn't eat the same food. They were refugees. The Babylonians, it says that they probably settled them in a region uh, uh, of their country near the river Shabar. It was an area of devastation between Babylonia and Assyria. And their job was, of the Israelites was to redevelop this wasted land. When you think about the Israelites, they were removed from their country. They were removed from everything that was common to them. Their temple was destroyed. Their city walls were broken down. So no longer was it about Jerusalem, but it was their lives. They were refugees. They were taken and held captive and carried across lands. That's kind of the setting of where they're at right now. And in this time, there was no shortage of false prophets just like there's no shortage of false prophets in America today. The false prophets of that day were trying to come and bring peace and comfort to the people of Jerusalem, going, well, hey, you know, within two years, Babylonia is going it's gonna, to it's gonna crash and burn, there's gonna, and you're going to be set free, and you're going to be able to go back home. And they're trying to convince the Israelites that there is this hope that's going to be there. And Jeremiah comes in chapter 29 with these clear words that are almost shocking words. They're almost depressing words. How many, you know, as we think about our America today, as we think about our land and we think about people that are speaking and they speak forth about America and they either speak calamity or they speak blessing and you're like going, which one's which? I want to believe the blessing, right? 
I want to believe the happiness that, no, prosperity's coming and America's going to be saved. And we do know that there's hope that there's going to be a revival. But how many know that we live in a culture that's broken? And yes, we have a part in that because we, pl- we can pray and we can bless and we can be an answer in a lot of ways. But God who orders everything is the one who declares the end. And these false prophets are coming to go, you know, within two years they're going to be set free. And Jeremiah all of a sudden comes with this negative Nancy message. He's going, hey, I don't want to be the naysayer here, but I want you to know that there's false prophets that are trying to tell you what's going to, be diff- what's, what's going to happen. Jeremiah comes and he says, I want you to step into this community. I want you to step into this country and I want you to be a difference in this country. He told them that it was going to, they would be captive for 70 years. Can I tell you, 70 years is a long time. The average American human lives 78 years. We're talking about a lifetime, 70 years. In the Bible, te- Bible times, that was actually two generations. God told the Israelites that he wanted them to move into the city, but he wanted, to continue, wanted them to continue to be his people. He wanted them to move into the city, but, he wanted, uh, but not, not allow the city to get into them. He wanted them to be part of it, to build houses, to raise children, but not to lose their identity. He wanted them to live and to settle there and not to withdraw and to separate. He wanted them to respectfully exist, but not to absorb their values or their culture they were there to be sac- sacrificial lovers of people and not to, dis- dis- not to disdainfully exist. I don't know if you see this comparison to our culture to then, but God has called you to come and to live, and He set you this time and this window, and I goes, I placed you here for such a time as this. I don't want you just to disdainfully exist. I want you to sacrificially love. Jeremiah tells them to go about normal life. The ancients Jews, they despaired because they had thought they had lost everything. They had lost all their, everything that, they, that belonged to them. But what they didn't realize was that Jeremiah is trying to communicate to them, no, you still have your faith. You may not have the temple, but you still have your faith. You may not have all the people, but you have your family. You have your friends. You have your love. You have this thing called hope. And as I look at this passage of Scripture, there are several verbs that Jeremiah uses. Verbs such as build, plan, plant, eat, marry, multiply, and work, and to pray. When I read these words, that's an action plan from Jeremiah. That's an action plan. You're going, well, man, how long do I have to live in Salem? Seventy years. Maybe more. God's the one that sets the timing, sets the place. Jeremiah is calling the people to do something, not just to isolate. He's, not, he's calling them to, don't just sit there and gripe and complain. Don't just sit there and weep. Don't just sit there and, and worry and wonder going, oh, is there anything good? Is there anything good in Babylon? This idea, this mission of loving where you live is this, to build, to plant, to marry, to multiply, to work, and to pray. How do you love where you live? You build, you plant, you marry, you multiply, you work, and you pray. But what are we supposed to do? You build, you plant, you marry, you multiply, you work, and you pray. But how do we do it? You build, you plant, you marry, you multiply, you work, and you pray. How long do we do it? As long as it takes. As long as God's placed you in this city, as long as God's set you here, you're here on purpose. You have to enter in this idea of building, 
is to build homes. Jeremiah says to build homes and plan to stay. I don't know where you're at this morning, but do you have an escape plan or are you here to stay? Do you have an escape plan? Are you thinking about what's next? Are you saying, God, I'm here for the duration, whatever it is you have for me? This idea of building is to occupy, to set up, to make a life, to put down your roots, to develop your life around. Jeremiah comes with the next verb and he says to plant, plant gardens and eat food that they produce. He's saying, be faithful in the seasons of life. There's a practicality of it here because they had to plant food to eat so that they could survive, but he's going, don't just plant food to eat to survive, but be faithful in the seasons. How many know that there's many seasons of life? You're going to have the seasons of, 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 of being a child and the seasons of a teenager and the seasons of, of, of an adult, the seasons of marriage, the seasons of having your own children, the seasons of having an empty nest, the seasons of becoming a grandparent, the seasons of, of, of golden years, whatever those seasons might be. And he's coming back and going, plant your gardens, be faithful to the season. Jeremiah comes back and gives another verb. He says, marry, marry and have children. Make it your home. Make it your home. Do what you would do at home. Establish your home. Raise your children in the community. Let them be part of the impact in the community. Teach them what is right. Raise them in the understanding of God. He uses the next verb of multiply. Find them spouses that they may have, uh, find them spouses that you may have many grandchildren. And I like this, do not dwindle away. I see the physical part of this and I see the heritage part of this, but can I tell you that there's a spiritual heritage part of this? That we're called not to dwindle. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, stop dwindling. Can I tell you, we have a responsibility to not dwindle in our faith. We have a responsibility to not dwindle in number. God says to go into all the world and to what? Preach the gospel, to multiply. Jeremiah's coming and saying, don't dwindle. Procreate, establish your families, raise up other believers, cause people to see salvation. Jeremiah comes back with another verb and he says, work. Work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I have sent you. I want you to remember that when we go back to Jeremiah, the very first part of this is that it says that God himself is the one that sent them to be captives in Babylon. It wasn't just because Babylon was stronger. God says, I'm the one who sent you there. Whether you feel captive to Salem or whether you feel in love with this city, can I tell you, God has put you here and you have a choice to either be lazy or to work. You have a choice to step in and be part of, to enter in to the messiness of the world or to step back and to criticize. And Jeremiah is encouraging us to work. The last verb that he uses here is to pray. Everyone say pray. It says pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare determines your welfare. Pray the Lord for it, for its its welfare determines your welfare. Can I tell you what this is saying? Is that the the success of our city, the success of Salem, determines your success. You can't have them apart, separated from each other. You can't come back and go, I'm going to be a success and Salem's going to fail. No, you're to be working for the welfare of of our city so that the welfare of the city determines your welfare. These verbs are ongoing, they're repeat. 70 years going on and on and on. You're to do all this without compromising. You're to do all this without assimilating or transform, being transformed to their culture. All of these areas take work and they take prayer and they take prayer and they take work and they take work and they take prayer and they take prayer and they take work. 70 years of ongoing process. Love where you live. Pastor Kevin, how long does it take? 
He says, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? Will you do these things? Jeremiah 29, 7, probably the most important verses of this passage. And the work and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you to ex- into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. The key to this verse here is the fourth word into it, fifth word into it, and it's the word peace. This Hebrew word shalom, Salem, means so much more than we actually think it is. Usually we think of shalom or peace being something calm. Don't we just like calmness in our homes? Can we just have peace? I want calmness. We think about peace being the absence of war. But this Hebrew word shalom is so much deeper than just calmness and absence of war. This word shalom, this word Salem, is fully thriving and flourishing, complete wholeness and well-being. One commentary said it this way, shalom is economically prosperous, psychologically hopeful, socially impactful, spiritually thriving. Think about that. I want to read that to you again. Shalom is economically prosperous, psychologically hopeful, socially impactful, and spiritually thriving. How many want some shalom in Salem? How many would like some shalom in your own life? This idea of shalom is universal wholeness, complete health. The key is the welfare of the city. It's impacted by our impact, by our welfare as well. We're to build, we're to plant, we're to marry, we're to multiply, we're to work, and we're to pray. What do we do the next generation? We build, we plant, we marry, we multiply, we work, and we pray. What happens when we get discouraged? We build, we plant, we marry, we multiply, we work, and we pray. What happens when everything's going good? We continue to build, we continue to plant, we continue to marry, we continue to multiply, we continue to work, we continue to pray. The reality of this is this, that we can do all these work things, we can do all these activities, we can do all these verbs, but the reality is the most important one is the pray one. We've got to come and we've got to pray to the Lord of the city. I love this, to pray to the Lord of the city. This is not the city of Jerusalem, this is the city of Babylon. God is coming and saying, I am the Lord of the city. I'm the Lord, even though that you've been abducted, you've been taken, you're a refugee refugee here. They are not my gods that are here, but I am the Lord of this city. He goes on, he says, pray for the shalom of the city. And what I realize is that God was trying to get the Israelites to a place of loving the people to pray for the people. Can I tell you, you don't pray well for people that you don't love. I don't pray well for people that I don't love. Right? When you're angry at people, you're praying God's justice on them. Right? Are you praying God's judgment? God, would you just get even with? But can I tell you, when you have a heart of love, you pray out of compassion. You pray out of grace right? You pray out of mercy. When you have a heart for lo- of love for people, you're going you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna build differently. When you have a heart of love for people, you're going to plant differently. When you have a heart of love, you're going to marry differently. When you have a heart of love, you're going to multiply differently. When you have a heart of love, you're going to work differently. Think about it. The Babylonians had killed killed their friends, destroyed their city. They were justified in feeling angry. Salem may have taken something from you. You may be justified in a behavior. 
Today, the call is for us to gain a heart of love and to pray for our city. This concept of pray is to weep over. When we talk about blessing, this idea of Jesus coming and blessing the city, of weeping over the city, weeping over the city, blessing the city, speaking life over the city, kneeling before God and declaring blessing over the city. Warren Wiersbe says this, the early church's rise to prominence in the Roman Empire resulted not from the pursuit of power, but from an unexplainable self-sacrificing love for others. Their influence arose from, <clears throat> from the quality and consistency of their service, not the extent of their ambition or the strength of their network. In other words, it wasn't about them multiplying in number that gave them influence. It wasn't about them gaining recognition that their organization was a bigger organization. It was about them coming and going, no, we are going to give self-sacrificial love to people. We need to build the plant to marry, to multiply, to work, and to pray. Matthew chapter 5 says this, reading the message paraphrase in verse 13. Eugene Peterson says, let me tell you why you are here. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your youthfulness, usefulness, excuse me, and will end up in the garbage. Verse 14, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, a public, as public as a city on a hill. If I, take you, uh, if, I'm, if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to put you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand now. Now that I put you there on the hilltop on a light stand, shine. Everyone say shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be open, by, by opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. How do we shine the light? We build, we plant, we marry, we multiply, we work, we pray, we go about life. We bring God into our life and into our livelihood and we become what God's called us to be in everyday life. Not to separate from, but to be part of, to enter into the messiness of our world, to enter into the messiness of life. The question I want to leave you with this morning is this. How can you work with God? How can you work with God? Not God work with you. What's God doing in our city? What is it that you need to get on the same page with God and not say, God, get on the same page with me? It's our hearts that need to be changed towards His heart. How can you work with God to build how can you work with God to plant? You better be working with God to find someone to marry. How do you work with God to multiply? How do you work with God to work in our city? How do you work with God to do your job in our city? All these are reliant and dependent upon our prayer life and our relationship with Him. And yes, I'd be, I, would, I would, would omit something very, very important, a very practical way is in two weeks when we have health flow, to do these things in our city. But can I tell you, this is more than just a once-a-year activity. It's more than just a series that we preach for six months. It really is a lifestyle that God's calling all of us to live. Because loving where you live doesn't just end at the end of May. Loving where you live is what God wants to put on a stamp over your life that you would be in every city that you live. Would you stand to your feet this morning? <clears throat>
Would you just lift your hands towards heaven today? God, today all of us, all of us have this challenge in our lives to build. God, you've called all of us to build something. And God, I pray that today we would feel this challenge, this mission of building, of planting, of marrying, of multiplying, of working, and of praying. God, would you help us to see our place in the city? God, would you help us to see why you called us to the city of Salem or the surrounding area, this metropolitan area? God, that there's a reason that we're here. God, would you empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit? As you're standing here this morning, would you just take a few seconds? What What area is most challenging to you? Is it the building? Is it the planting? Is it the seasons? Is it the marrying, the multiplying, the working? Is it the praying? God, we just lift up these different areas to you. God, whatever it is that is in our life that may be the weakest. And God, we ask that you give us strength to help us to be what you called us to be. God, help me to love Salem. Would you pray that today? God, help me to love Salem. You say, Pastor Kevin, I love Salem. Well, I want to ask you, do you love Salem like Jesus loves Salem? Because that's the category. God, help me to love Salem like Jesus loves Salem. And God, we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Our prayer team's coming around the front. Would you let them pray with you today? They love prayer. They love you. And uh, they, they love God. And they have power to do this. So would you let them pray with you today? God bless you. Make sure you sign up for Outflow. Make sure that our numbers go up. We need your help. We need your participation. And you will be blessed as well. Have an amazing week this week. God bless you. See you next Sunday. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.